Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Hello again, and welcome to the September edition of State of Distressed Debt. Part of the FIC Focus podcast series where we focus on U.S. stress, distress, and bankruptcy markets. It is September 13th. I'm your host, Dahl Hubert, and today's hotter-than-projected CPI is giving the latest market narrative a pretty good shake, I'd say. So joining me once again to explore it all are Eliza Ronalds-Hannon of Bloomberg News, as well as litigation analyst Nagisa Baluku and senior distressed analyst Phil Brindell, each of Bloomberg Intelligence. In addition, uh, very pleased to also bring you a very interesting conversation had with Trey Parker, co-founder and chief investment officer of Sycamore Tree Capital Partners, as he offers his view on credit markets, uh, both where we are and where we may be going. That's coming up in a little bit. But first, Bill, you know, crazy times here, certainly today. Uh, you know, the market's up, it's down, it's all around. It's kind of like doing a 1980s dance or something. But trying to figure out where we sit with all these things, whether it's growth in margins, inflations, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it definitely doesn't feel like we're out of the woods just yet. So walk me through maybe what you saw from uh, the landscape of distressed in August and you know whether that or what we saw earlier today from CPI and, and a huge market drawdown uh, has any sort of impact in terms of how you're thinking about the rest of the year. Hi, Noel. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting because um, we're getting kind of lost in the, our technical picture is getting a little muddled. Um, the first half of the year was absolutely horrible for credit. The distressed markets, uh, I think it, we peaked at the end of June with 155 billion of distressed supply, um, which, you know, and that's of about 1.5 trillion that's in this high yield index that I, it's the ICE high yield, US high yield index. And that's a 10.7% ratio uh, for distressed. Now, most peaks for distressed are at the very bottom of that range. We've had it as high as 86% of high yield is distressed, but usually distress cycles will take you up to at least 24%. So that's where we were at the end of June. And then for two straight months now, July and August, we've seen distress supply climb down, which is good news for the world. I don't want to like, you know, our, our, our view of the world's <laughs> a little distorted. Um, but uh, what we've seen now is distress supply is just a little bit over 100 billion, a seven and change percent distress ratio. And this is the kind of movement that we'd actually say, hey, should I be getting back into high yield at this point? And I think that would be misleading. Um, you know, one more one more positive month, and our buy technical signal might actually get triggered. I don't think that would be a wise decision, but uh, that's the technical picture that I'm seeing. Uh, fundamentally, it feels like we're just having a slower spike here. Um, we're seeing a distressed increase. Distress supply is increasing, but it's it's taking its time. And it's it's a it's a more like a slow uh, surge as opposed to uh, a spike. And um, yeah, I mean that's sort of consistent. Obviously, what we've seen in in the broader high yield market, where you've seen spreads sort of form 
uh, to your point, almost like a head and shoulders pattern where we got really, really bad at the very beginning of July. And since then, it's been sort of the rally, the retracement, another rally. And if we got sort of a continuation of that rally, then then you kind of start thinking, well, maybe we're going to go back to you know, 300 basis points, more broadly speaking, in high yield. That said, then came today and you had equity markets down four to five percent, depending on which market you're talking about. And high yield, at least on the CDX basis, was probably down a percent and a half. Uh, so I suspect we're going to get some pretty decent remarking. So, you know, I, I guess, how do you think about maybe the digestion of sort of some of today's volatility and, and sort of the hotter than expected CPI, and the implications for monetary policy in terms of, you know, reinforcing either your view that sort of trying to catch the knife here is maybe premature. I guess I kind of imply it just in the statement, but how do you think about sort of the macro relative to, to what you're seeing? Right. So the, that's, we have a tightening fed. I mean, a lot of times with these distressed cycles, when they, we get the supply spikes, we get a very accommodative fed. We obviously March, 2020 is the you know epitome of that. Uh, when the Fed came in, guns a-blazing with liquidity. Um, and here we have the exact opposite. The Fed's not going to be here to rescue uh, the market. Um, and so, you know, my feeling is that we are going to continue to see uh, a, a trying market for high yield and distressed. Uh, the, the other aspect is we're still in the negative part of the calendar. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how the next two months go. Uh, seasonally, uh, all the way through November, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty negative. June through November is usually pretty negative, in, at least for the distressed index. Um, and so I, I, you know, it's getting close, but I think you'd have to really uh, convincingly uh, show that credits found its legs again before I'd, uh, you know, throw in the towel and we're going to see a higher distress ratio. Interesting, uh, as always, and certainly interesting times. And that sort of maybe sets a good segue uh, to go ahead and bring in our conversation, Phil, uh, that you and I had with Trey Parker earlier today, where he touched on uh, a lot of those themes and, and certainly a lot more. In this September 13th edition of the State of Distressed Debt podcast, Phil and I are very pleased uh, to welcome today Trey Parker, uh, co-founder and chief investment officer for Sycamore Tree Capital Partners down in the Big D, Dallas, Texas. So, Trey, a lot of stuff to dig into today, certainly across the credit markets, risk assets, et cetera, and so very eager to get your thoughts about the state of play, uh, but very hard to ignore the latest CPI print, which came in uh, pretty much like summer in your hometown down there, hot, hot, hot. So let's maybe start there. What are you thinking about uh, sort of how this non-transitory inflation uh, plays through, whether it's rates, corporate margins, et cetera? What are you thinking? Absolutely. And first, first, let me uh, say thank you to both you and, and Phil for uh, having me on the podcast today. Really appreciate the time to, uh, to to speak to you guys and to talk a little bit about markets and, and credit. Um, 
So, Noel, to your to your point on CPI, we are certainly uh, very, as well as the market is very focused on uh, the outperformance or the higher than expected level of core inflation. Uh, certainly, that is having a significant impact. Equities are trading off pretty substantially, and spreads, and particularly in IG and high yield, are starting to to move out uh, after having rallied uh, for the last uh, week or so. Um, you know, we are very focused on the impact that the rising uh, inflation environment, this, this sort of the high inflation environment will have on the Fed's activity. Certainly interest rates are, you know, front and center of everyone's minds these days. Um, the market was already pricing in nearly a 75 basis point hike next week. Uh, we think that's, you know, a certainty at this point. In fact, there are a number of folks talking about, you know, potentially as much as 100 basis points. Um, you know, I think the the big indication at this point is the speed and the ultimate destination as to where the Fed gets from a rate hike perspective. Uh, we believe that they're going to need to get to near four or four and a half percent by early next year. Uh, and the faster they move to that point, I think, ultimately, the better for the ultimate shape and trajectory of this cycle. Now, do you worry at all? I mean, so, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, kind of consistent with where a lot of people are at, maybe. But do you worry about in terms of whether it's the shape of the curve or then sort of how we transition from maybe a, an inflationary backdrop and let's say we get it under control to you know, what does that mean for demand side of the equation? Because it doesn't look like, I mean, real wages are still pretty negative. Uh, and, and obviously on the corporate side, you got to worry about whether it's, you know, supply chain issues, which seem to sort of be resolved and then unresolved. Like, how do you think about all these pieces and parts sort of fitting together in terms of what the actual economy looks like, call it a year from now? Look, I think it's becoming increasingly difficult for the Fed to navigate a super soft landing uh, as it relates to the economic picture. Uh, we are seeing, um, you know, increases in wages, increases in rents, things, as we all know, are extraordinarily sticky when it comes to inflation. And I think the Fed is is very concerned with that. I think they're really worried that if they don't act swiftly and aggressively, um, they're potentially uh, putting the the economy into a potential stagflationary environment. Um, and so I think the swiftness is certainly having an impact on lower end consumer behavior and consumer activity. Uh, trade down effects are already happening. Uh, looking at the results of many of our borrowers uh, after the second quarter earnings, this sort of uh, money effect of uh, higher prices are muting or at least masking lower volume levels, you're already starting to see some demand deterioration uh, across a number of industries. So I, I think uh, the Fed is, is starting to achieve what it's looking to achieve, which is demand uh, compression, um, but they're not done yet. And I think that they're going to have to be clear that they're not done yet because the market is still very divided on the fact that they could pivot more quickly. And I think you know it's likely to be a longer process to, to cause inflation to really come unhinged and, and to start to, to fall where we need it to fall um, to allow the economy to heal. So that, I mean, that sets up an interesting segue to sort of move into, you know, where you're sort of viewing the credit markets right now in terms of where, you know, one, how did we get to where we are? Where are we? Uh, uh, and then sort of where do you see us going, you know, over the next, you know, months and quarters? Uh, because I think it is, to your point, I mean, we've got a little bit of a spread blowout, but it's been a bit of a seesaw, right? I mean, over the last, call it three months or so, where we move wider, we compress, we move wider again, we compress again. Uh, so it's a market sort of without direction uh, a bit. So I guess maybe, you know, how do you sort of look at the, the timeline in terms of how the environment for credit plays out? 
the one word I would describe where we're at right now is is early. And, and I would even emphasize that by saying very early um, in terms of potential widening and, you know, potential for distress in, in credit markets. I think we're always looking at the markets on a relative basis to a very recent past. And you know, the volatility we've seen since the Russia-Ukraine invasion in the spring uh, feels extraordinarily volatile. Uh, and it has been, to be frank. And you know, we're seeing uh, broadening dispersion levels and more rational pricing of risk uh, in markets. And I think that's a healthy thing. Um, but if you look at absolute spread levels across you know, credit markets, they're still very low versus historical recessionary averages. You know, we're maybe a quarter or a third of the way into the, the, the uh, widening process. But I think that there's a real chance that unless, you know, we're surprised to the upside by a turnaround in the economy and demand, which I have a hard time believing, we've got, you know, a decent amount of additional widening to, to happen across credit markets. I mean, I think one of the things that tends to come up with that, and I'd be curious on your take on this as well, is is one of the things you hear is, and, and, and it makes sense, right? Because you talked to, or alluded to sort of the proximity bias for markets, right? There's sort of a myopia around it, uh, you know. Yields, obviously, you know, ignoring spread for a moment, yields are sort of at levels people haven't seen in a while, which I think gets people excited when they can get 8% in a high yield or or in change in investment grade or something like that. So they tend to buy the coupon uh, as opposed to the credit risk. Uh, do you, How do you sort of see that process? You know, is that sort of an iteration where, I mean, effectively, we've just got to dissuade uh, that investor class of, of sort of living in that mantra? Look, I think people have lived in such a relatively low interest rate, low inflationary environment for so long, adjusting the mindsets to what it takes to actually generate real rates of return um, is going to take some time. And I think that, you know, it's intriguing and quite frankly, attractive to be able to invest in investment grade, you know, credit at four or five percent. I mean, AAA CLOs now are north of five percent on a forward curve basis, which, you know, given the risk profile of that asset class is extraordinarily attractive. Um, but, you know, when you look at inflation at, you know, core at, you know, six point three percent, it certainly takes significant, um, you know, nominal returns to exceed that and to make sure that you're not, you know, losing your buying power in uh in in your capital um so I, I think that investor mindsets will take a while to adjust to what nominal returns really mean um you know that being said i think that there are some attractive places to invest in credit markets and credit markets quite frankly relative to equities and fixed income uh are still presenting very attractive alternatives um given the trajectory and rates and, and certainly the valuations that we're seeing in those other markets so that, I mean, that maybe ends up setting up a, a good sort of transition in terms of talk about sort of maybe interesting places or attractive places to invest in the credit markets. Credit markets are also very different <laughs> than they were five years ago, 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago. Um, so, so I guess maybe sort of walk us through sort of how you look at sort of the evolution of the marketplace, number one, uh, and then how you go about sort of identifying where the most attractive places are sort of maybe target options? First of all, the credit markets are, at least the below investment grade credit markets, are far larger than they've ever been. Um, and that, uh, you know, with the combined bank loan high yield market at over $3 trillion, um, you know, that size of market base um, creates, you know, both opportunity and risk, uh, reason for performance and uh, underperformance and outperformance. And I think that will, you know, ultimately serve, you know, good time-tested managers well, but, but certainly... 
um, creates in a more normalized, um, kind of stressier, distressed environment, a large, large opportunity set. Um, in terms of where we're seeing, or I guess before I go into what we're seeing opportunities, uh, talking about the, 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 the profile of the market today versus 20 years ago. Um, Speak about the bank loan market uh, specifically. I think you're seeing a much higher preponderance of that market owned by spread-based buyers, i.e. CLOs. Nearly 70, I think 72% of the market uh, in loans is held uh, you know, by CLOs uh, with the remainder you know, in retail and, and bank and, and you know, other institutional investor base. Um, I think the, that, that dynamic creates a, a somewhat stickier asset class, um, an investor base that's highly rating sensitive, that's very encouraged to keep capital you know, deployed and at work in the loans. And therefore, I think it maybe mutes some of the you know, fickle volatility uh, that you might have seen in that in that market in the past, in back in the GFC or even days before, you know that participation was you know fifty percent or less, uh, and therefore you had a lot more hedge fund and, and fast money participation in bank loans, and therefore you know reasons for higher volatility uh, and and really a number of other structural changes that we can talk about later in terms of the way that distressed and restructurings play out. High yield, um, I think, is is not too dissimilar to the way it's been, although, again, a much larger asset class, um, you know, a, a big institutional and retail investor base uh, can cause, um, you know, ups and downs in liquidity, ups and downs in biases in terms of spreads and rates. Um, and I think that may be a better indicator just over time of where perception of risk is. But the ratings profile and the quality of that market has really changed. It's in fact gotten a lot healthier, a lot higher quality than it was in years past, which may actually cause the, the interbehavior between loans and high yield to be much different this time than it, than it was in the past. Um, I'll pause there before I get into market opportunities in case we wanted to dig into this. Yeah, pieces. I mean, uh, I know Phil has some questions on loans, so I'm going to front run him on one of them here. But I mean, I guess, you know, speaking to the loan piece, right, I mean, uh, and you sort of alluded to that uh, in the response in terms of the change in quality, right? It's going to happen in both markets, both high yield and in the loan space where high yields maybe moved up spectrum a little bit and loans have maybe moved down spectrum a little bit. Uh, do you worry about uh, sort of the, the the credit quality underneath, or do you think uh, you know in terms of the, the capitalizations there and, and the way those capital structures are largely built out, specific to maybe what uh, CLOs are allowed to sort of invest in? Uh, do you look at that as sort of a, a defensive or or sort of a still maybe a risk neutral type of place? I think part of the the down migration in ratings in the bank loan market has been a function of a change in in industry weightings. I think the larger preponderance of technology as a component of the loan market has certainly dragged down weighted average ratings and increased the size of the B three B minus part of the rating spectrum uh, within within loans. Um, and I think that those businesses, most of them, trade at materially higher, you know, enterprise values and have a decent amount of uh, junior capital or equity capital below you in terms of the first lien, you know, debt part of the capital structure. And I think that does, to some extent, insulate um, the market from being just a broad-based, lower quality, lower recovery rate dynamic. That being said, um, relatively uh, low base rate spreads or base rate um, uh, base rates 
uh, and relatively cheap and open access to capital markets has allowed sponsors to push the envelope as it relates to overall leverage profile, particularly in the more pro-cyclical uh, parts of the market or industries. And I think that's where we, I think, have to be a little bit more sensitive to liquidity profile under a more extended cycle uh, and overall leverage profile of companies that are maybe under-equitized vis-a-vis uh, -vis that, that, um, that technology example that I used earlier. Um, so I'll, I'll pause there. Hey, Trey, I, you know, I, I'm a distressed guy. I enjoy thinking about thing, the world from a workout perspective. And you have all these loans in your portfolio and, you know, you've got deep history in the markets. Um, I'm curious how you see the world's change in terms of workouts and, you know, the, the, the addition of like more and more CLOs. And one thing I've always thought is that CLOs don't necessarily mind a covenant light world because, defaults, technical defaults will as much be a headache to them as, uh, you know, in their reporting and as it could be to a to a debtor. Um, it wasn't that way, you know, maybe 20 years ago when people were more focused on defaults and getting more control of the company or not getting control of the company, but at least monitoring it more closely. And I'm, it seems to me CLOs are more about keep paying me until you can't. And then at that point, you know, we'll, we'll get into it, but I'm just, you know, for the last five plus years, I've been on the sidelines. I'm curious, how do how do you see it as a actually player in the field? So the holder base is, is grown uh, substantially. I mean, we're probably four X the number of active bank loan investors than we were in the early two thousands. And uh, I think that that, um, dispersion of holder base makes uh, restructurings uh, more complex. I think it makes uh, amalgamation of significant, you know, minority control or control groups, you know, much more challenging. And to your point about biases or preferences of CLOs, you know, focusing on trying to invest in the fulcrum security to get the equity to make some sort of outsized return isn't what CLOs are designed to do. You know, CLOs are designed to generate strong returns for all the stakeholders across their cap structure based on, you know, good, solid structuring, liability pricing and risk management. Um, you know, I think distressed uh, for CLO is, is, you know, for the most part, a, a, a not a positive thing. So um, the higher quality focus CLO managers will try to avoid them. But when they happen, I think CLOs certainly bias or preference performing take back paper, even potentially to the detriment of total recovery and total return. And I think that's the balancing act that, you know, different CLO managers will take a different approach on. But by and large, um, you know, additional issuance of CLOs, solid performance of the cash flows within those deals is the most important thing. And the absolute recovery value for an individual name that happens to be in the deal is less so. I think that changes the way that a lot of loan restructurings happen in that, A, there's a lot more pre-pack, a lot more pre-negotiated situations so that um, there's, A, not a risk of free fall, but also because I think consensus and consolidation around um a lower leverage structure that, that is performing and that can survive, you know, whether it be cyclical or secular challenges, the business is better. I also think it advantages um, distressed investors who can bring capital to the table, whether it be dip financings or rights offerings or equity injections. Uh, I think those will be the folks that tend to drive and, and you know, uh, demand a certain treatment and therefore a certain outcome from restructurings going forward. Um, 
and also allows them, I think, from a level of insight and control into things that actually create value added distress, which are strategic turnaround plans and operational leadership and, and uh, things that you know, create value, not just you know, find value. Um, I don't know if that answers your questions. Yeah, no, that's great. And, uh, you know, one follow up is you deal with a lot of small mid cap uh, 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 companies and, you know, there's the large cap uh, companies. When there's a workout, um, we know that professional expenses can be ex- really mount up. And, you know, the bigger companies, they can handle that. They're, there's kind of like everyone can have a committee and the professionals can all get paid from them. But the smaller companies and mid, middle, middle-sized companies, that's a real problem because the cash flow just can't necessarily uh, take care of those professional fees they, they, at the level they seem to be when people use the old playbook from the large cap companies. And I'm just curious, do do you see the world as two ways, you know, that like, hey, we can't afford to have uh, a professional for everything here? Or, you know, I'm just curious how you see the world there. And certainly in the large cap space, the boon continues in that, you know, advisors and lawyers tend to make more than the investors during those periods of distress in the large cap. Um, it'll be interesting to see, and we haven't seen a real distress cycle uh, since the direct lending you know, industry has come of, of age, if you will, post the GFC, um, how much more coordinated and you know efficient uh, those turnaround or those restructuring situations are. I think there'll be probably a lot more self-help, a lot more um, you know, uh, consensual uh, deals between sponsors and uh, and direct lenders, such that there's this, not this massive sucking sound or leakage uh, from friction costs um, in those smaller or mid cap deals. Now, the small mid cap deals that are BSL, they're broadly syndicated that have bonds and other parts of the cap stack. I think that's just going to be a tax that people have to assume uh, will be a part of the situation, and it's going to you know erode value. And um, it'll be interesting to see how. Uh, how that plays out in this next cycle. Yeah, I mean, so that's a, I mean, that's a good opportunity to maybe sort of pivot the conversation a little bit into what you're looking for from the distress cycle. And I guess maybe as part of that, I mean, one of the things that's obviously new and novel this time around for all of us is sort of the the advent or, or at least the materially larger uh, private lending type of dynamic marketplace. And I guess one of the concerns for, for me would be is, is that you know, loans are obviously less li- liquid, less visible relative to corporates and private lending, probably even more so. So I guess, you know, is there a risk that maybe the distress cycle starts to play out and we don't even know it for three months, six months, because it's just sort of happening in the shadows a little bit and then it sort of falls upon us? Or do you not sort of see that as a risk? And then and then maybe sort of your thoughts in terms of what you are looking for uh, for distress sort of this time around? I think it's going to be tough for distress to hide uh, in just the private markets or the private lending markets. I think there's enough, um, you know, broadly syndicated uh, loans and, and, you know, bond deals that are tenuous in terms of liquidity and or capital structure such that and, and sort of the tightness of the cap markets such that we're going to see distress more broad based. You know, certainly is the case that smaller companies and smaller cap deals um, have left less room for error. Um, but we've actually seen historically better recovery levels for smaller deals. Maybe it's because the deals have a little bit less uh, mouths to feed, whether it be on the advisor side or there's a little bit you know, more coordination between management team board and you know, lender base. Um, so 
I, I, by and large, the private lender community, I think, is going to try to, you know, do things on a self-help basis, especially if they have a significant experience having navigated and managed through uh, cycles in the past. Um, there's going to be smaller guys that just won't have that um, that skill set or that incremental capital availability. But, uh, you know, I honestly think, you know, we're, we're going to see a relatively cooperative, um, you know, distress cycle in in that kind of private lending space, at least for the time being. Now, do you think about sort of the, the I guess one of the things that's sort of unique and, and there's no, as as Phil likes to say, there's no two distress cycles that are alike, right? And, and I think obviously the, the cycle in the wake of the pandemic was unique in and of its own right because of sort of what instigated it. Uh, obviously the great financial crisis we hope never repeats. So that's sort of unique. But then if you go back sort of, I guess the early 2000s, uh, and then the early 90s, I mean, those were sort of elongated cycles where you really just, you, you couldn't sort of escape the the bear trap, so to speak. I guess, you know, how do you think about this cycle? Do you have sort of a bias in terms of how we play out here in terms of is it long, is it short? Uh, are recoveries very pro-cyclical such that you're not looking at 40 cents, you're looking at 20 cents? How do you think about sort of the manifestation this time around? So I think the pandemic, just to, to call out a couple of the examples that you just listed, the pandemic was clearly V-shaped based on monetary policy. Um, the GFC was really a deleveraging crisis uh, that, you know, in, in the loan market and even in the high yield market, there was a tremendous amount of mark to market leverage that had to be flushed out of the system. Uh, but again, uh, by and large, a V-shaped recovery. I do think this cycle will look more like the 01 to 03 distress cycle than than the other two that, that you mentioned. Uh, I think that there's a fair amount of built up um, excesses, whether those be excesses being companies that haven't been forced to deal with you know, their operational issues, haven't had to seek to invest to enhance productivity uh, or enhance their business model or evolve to some of the secular headwinds that they're facing, uh, or excess relates to just over-levered capital structures. So, you know, it could be bad business, bad capital structure, or it could just be bad capital structure, um, you know, with the type of inflation that we're seeing and the type of pricing power companies may or may not have. Um, some of these capital structures and businesses were built on the back of margin profile and cash flow profiles that may not exist anymore. And that will need to correct itself. And we don't have a maturity wall. There's not a lot of 23, 24, even 25 maturities left to deal with. And companies bolster up their liquidity stores and their balance sheets um, on the back of the pandemic. So I think they're going to last probably a little longer than um, than they might otherwise. And so I think we're going to kind of muddle along for a while. And, you know, companies are going to slowly start to kind of reach the, the the conclusion that they either need to evolve and change or they're going to have to restructure, you know, maybe uh, redo their cap stack and, and maybe in some ways change their operations. Um, so we think this is a longer cycle than, than the last two, but might be closer to the third one uh, going back in, in history. And, and now maybe we're sort of in a, in a new era now that we're sort of in a QT and sort of monetary policy tightening cycle as opposed to the opposite. But I guess, you know, one of the things that we've seen certainly in recent years, certainly as the Fed has been more engaged in sort of underpinning, uh, you know, capital markets overall is, is that sort of, at least from my perception, the cycles became shorter and shorter and shorter. And now we're talking about a potential elongation. How do you think about sort of dry powder or dollars on the sidelines? Uh, do you think it's patient enough to wait the cycle out? Or, or do we sort of see this again, sort of maybe sawtooth action 
lower as people sort of try to catch the falling knife and, and sort of replay that game all the way down? You know, it's an interesting dichotomy. I will tell you there is a ton of dry powder on the sidelines. A lot of capital has been raised to do and, and manage through distressed. Um, but the real question is how disciplined that capital is, um, you know, and how much they uh, can be patient for levels to get to um, areas where A, they're creating good value, but B, they're buying at a level where they can actually, you know, um, do something with the business after they effectively buy it through the debt. Um, you know, I think that, you know, by and large, most folks will be more patient. I think, um, you know, the 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 last six or seven months uh, hasn't really been a big distressed investor kind of dynamic. It's been more kind of trading activity and, and people that are being optimistic and opportunistic and thinking that maybe the Fed, Fed pivots earlier and things kind of just get back to normal. Um, I, I think if we do see a real elongated cycle, um, the distressed guys are going to take their time. They're going to use their capital uh, on a more disciplined basis, maybe come in, uh, not necessarily trying to buy up the fulcrum security, but maybe come in strategically over the top and and do something that influences the outcome of the process and enhances um, you know, their control uh, in the situation. That's That's kind of how I think it plays out this time. And do you think, uh, I mean, I mean, I think that's kind of interesting in terms of particularly what the potential implications are there for recovery rates sort of through the, the capital stack and that sort of thing. How do you think, uh, you know, sort of should people be expecting, uh, given that kind of behavior, maybe lower recoveries than might uh, historically have been the norm? Certainly will be sector by sector, but yeah, I think it's fair to assume that the recovery rates will come down. How substantially, I think, uh, is a little bit of an unknown. I um, uh, I would tell you that you know the episodic recovery rates that have been quoted over the last you know four or five six years have been very idiosyncratic. Energy in the 15-16 time period was inherently low, just because of the way that those cap stacks are constructed. Um, you know, so I I think. Uh, 70% recovery rates for first lien loans and 40% recovery rates for high yield bonds, which has been long-term used as the kind of average. I think those are lower. Um, I don't think by a ton, but I, I do think they come down. Um, on the flip side, um, and recovery rates are always judged at the trading price at the time of, of distress, um, capital structures have become a bit more simplistic than they were in the GFC. Used to be you had senior secured, then you had you know, um, second lien, and then you had uh, senior notes, and then you had sub notes, you had all these different layers, um, which inherently impacts recovery rates. You know, things have become a little simpler. Um, you typically have a first lien and, and you know, unsecured bonds or first lien, second lien. And so the levels of having to titrate uh, the capital structure for recoveries has probably gotten, gotten better than, than worse uh, since the GFC. Yeah, I always enjoy the, the Calpine capital structure in particular. The, uh, the third liens on the random generating facility. Or, or the one and a half liens or <laughs> exactly. the two and a half liens. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess maybe that kind of pivots us back to sort of where we left off maybe uh, several minutes ago, which is sort of, you know, where you see, uh, you know, the potential for opportunity when you're looking at the landscape today. Because obviously it sounds like, uh, you know, you're looking at us being still very early innings, maybe spread action, still having quite a ways to go. Uh, and obviously the distress wave not really taking hold. So maybe more of a defensive posture. So how do you sort of allocate capital in this kind of environment? 
And so the stress we've seen so far um, you know, are focus areas where we've spent our time in terms of industries. Healthcare uh, has created some interesting opportunities, uh, a lot of stories out there, um, you know, some created by, say, the opioid, uh, you know, class action settlement dynamics, whether it be uh, Mallinckrodt or Nendo uh, or, um, you know, uh, situations like Bausch would, is going to be an interesting one to, to see play out, um, you know, are, are a bit more idiosyncratic. And so there's always areas where there's good underlying value and assets, um, but, you know, some sort of externality creates um, a sell-off and cap structure and therefore creates, you know, more attractive entry prices. Uh, other parts of the healthcare landscape, like say an Envision where you have, you know, um, labor cost inflation driving, you know, an incremental tax on the healthcare system, you know, um, is, is a little bit more secular, a little bit more broad based. And so I think healthcare is an area where we think there will be opportunities. Um, utilities is another sector where we've been spending some time. Uh, there's certainly some some headwinds uh, for um, long term demand for traditional utilities um, because of uh, power efficiencies. So places like PJM and NISO uh, have been, you know, interesting opportunities to follow with, you know, a lot of both regulatory dynamics where capacity market changes have, have impacted, um, you know, profitability of utility players. And then, uh, you know, obviously the renewable space is having an impact on utilities. So um, we think that will be a, a heightened uh, level of stress distress over the coming uh, cycle. Um, you know, beyond that, the cyclicals, we like the cyclicals. I've played personally in a lot of brick and mortar uh, stress and distress situations in my past because these are good old-fashioned companies that have a reason to exist um, that are in some cases exposed to just volatile demand environments and reduced profitability um, but as long as their product their industry um, the long-term demand trend is sound um, we think there's an opportunity to buy things at attractive levels you know operationally enhance and improve them and um, you know ultimately uh, ride through to the other end of the cycle so we always like uh, you playing the cyclicals at certain points in time. To your point, it's still probably early um, in areas like even housing and building products, which has seen a pretty significant, you know, sell off in the first half of the year. Um, but trends in the housing market in the U.S. because we're still undercapacitized uh, or undersupplied, I should say, um, you know, from from a long term housing perspective. Yeah, the good thing about the housing market, I always found, is at least you know the cash flows are counter cyclical, right? I mean, when Unless you're Hobnonian, which is sort of uh, overcomplicated and leveraged to the hilt historically, a little bit better more recently, right? I mean, you at least generate cash flows off of the monetization of inventory so you can ride the cycle a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, the financial crisis being sort of an exception there. I know uh, I want to bring Phil back in here because I know he's always really intrigued in sort of uh, victories and failures and that sort of thing. Phil, what do you got? I was just going to ask you, Trey, you know, you, you, you've got deep experience in this area and, you know, in the workouts, uh, I, I know the institutions you've worked for, you've certainly, you know, seen the hard knuckle fights. I'm just curious, you know, are, are there any that come to mind in terms of like big wins and then maybe some of those losses that taught some valuable lessons? Sure. I, I think the big wins is where there's a really niche and unique, whether it's an asset or an end market, you know, market share position um, where you can um, show some, you know, uh, say in the telecom space where there's a unique asset, um, you know, maybe it's capacity. 
um, or its infrastructure um, that you know has a real strong reason to exist and pricing power. Um, you know, ultimately, that's what you're trying to get to is is the ability to withstand you know, demand compression, but have a unique enough uh, market position to to kind of live to the other end of of an economic cycle. Um, so, telecom has been an area where we've had some success in that. Um, certainly, in areas of of transports and building products, also where you have a more niche approach. Um, you know, maybe it's an underserved or niche segment uh, within within the building product space. Um, those are those are areas where I, I would say, without getting into specific names, you know, we've had uh, we've had some nice success. I think the areas where failure um, or, or, or lessons learned, I should say, is um, areas where you think you uh, are just you know, better than the next guy. You think you can operate better. You think you can cut more costs. You think you can outrun some sort of regulatory dynamic in your industry um, because purely on, you know, management expertise, especially in the sort of mid-size and smaller end of the market, uh, it's really, really challenging, really, really difficult to to outrun, um, you know, long-term trends uh, with smaller companies, less leverage to pull. Uh, and so those were, would be, um, you know, in some of the same you know, industries, but healthcare has been an area where outrunning kind of uh, rate-based cuts and and um, and um, you know healthcare um, cuts by uh, by by public uh, payers has been a challenging area for us um, in the past. That's great. I really appreciate it. So let's maybe wrap with uh, one last question, and then uh, Trey, we can give you whatever final word you might want to offer everybody. But I guess uh, you know. I mean, again, I guess you, you kind of look at it as being early innings, you know, uh, and I guess I, I always laugh because uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Ed Altman, who always talks about popping his or opening his bottle of fine red wine every time a distress cycle comes around. I guess, you know, are the distress cycles or, or does the pending distress cycle get you excited at all just because we haven't really seen sort of a full suite of opportunities in quite a long time uh, or, are you, or are you still kind of not quite there yet? Look, it is exciting in that um, risk is being priced more rationally. I think you know it's always challenging as a credit investor to sit there in front of your your, your team and and look at a relval chart that's a flat line across the page. And so <laughs> now that they are sloping upward into the right, which is the way that they should, you at least can you know make judgments calls on the trade off between risk and return. And that's what's exciting, you know. And and we've got you know um, focus on different parts of the risk return and liquidity spectrum. I think for the right long-term patient capital with an investor mindset around you know capturing return not picking bottoms but capturing return rationally over time i think um this cycle will be super exciting on the other end of the spectrum i think it's it's all about playing good defense it's all about making sure that you know you're avoiding the blow-ups because i think they're going to be messier noisier and potentially lower recoveries than than um than than past cycles so i think it's a bifurcated market um but again for the right patience and the right approach and the right capital um i am excited about where the cycle is headed i don't know that there's a better way to sum it up than that uh well let me uh, then sort of conclude here and wrap up this portion uh trey really uh, uh quite a pleasure to have you on appreciate sort of all your insights uh into the marketplace uh you know it's uh, it'll be very exciting to see uh you know where this cycle goes and and uh, certainly wish you all the best of luck and at sycamore tree uh you know any last thoughts for for listeners 
Now, this has been uh, a great conversation. I really uh, appreciate the opportunity to participate. Um, you know, we're excited about the opportunities that the market will present us over the next several years. And, you know, as, as a firm that's been around for, for numerous cycles, um, we hope we can be a measured hand in kind of navigating those. So, Fantastic. Thanks very much. And that's Trey Parker, co-founder and chief investment officer of Sycamore Tree Capital Partners. All right, so a lot there to digest, certainly a lot of insight in around our current state of play. So once again, many thanks to Trey Parker for joining us. Uh, but let's go ahead and keep the momentum rolling here and, and bring in Nagisa. Nagisa, uh, the world's getting more exciting, certainly for you, uh, certainly a lot more to do uh, and, and kind of a laundry list to sort of maybe tackle here. But maybe we start with Revlon, uh, big win for City. Uh, what are we looking at sort of for the continued evolution of that case? Thanks, Noel. So on September 8th, uh, Citibank uh, got a reversal uh, of the district court opinion. Uh, so we got a ruling from the f federal, the Second Circuit uh, Appeals Court, allowing it to take back more than $500 million uh, in mistaken payment that City had made to Revlon's term lenders back in 2020. Um, what does this mean for Revlon's bankruptcy? Well, for now, for, for, for sure, it brings more clarity. Uh, Revlon, when it first filed, it stated in its papers that it actually had lacked a counterparty with them to negotiate uh, with, with respect to pre-bankruptcy, pre during bankruptcy, and now it has that. Uh, Revlon had uh, just quite recently actually filed an adversary proceeding in uh, city had filed an adversary proceeding in Revlon's bankruptcy seeking to establish itself as a creditor in the bankruptcy to establish a subrogation claim on account of this $500 million payment. doesn't have to do that anymore. Um, it, uh, th that loss has become smooth. Uh, we, I think we've talked about it in the past. The whole idea of establishing a subrogation claim would, may have been sort of an uphill battle. Certainly had its, uh, its difficulties, would have had its difficulties for, for City, so it doesn't have to do that anymore. So this is all around good news for City, brings more clarity uh, to Revlon's bankruptcy. Uh, where do we go from, from here? There's obviously options there for appeal. Uh, there's uh, the en banc petition. Uh, where you can ask the Second Circuit to take another look at the case. Um, those are rarely successful. Uh, there's the possibility to appeal this all the way to the Supreme Court next. Uh, we don't think that's the kind of issue that the Supreme Court would take. So uh, this is probably the final world word we'll have on this issue. Uh, and sort of would allow, will allow Revlon bankruptcy to proceed from here. So, so good news just in terms of maybe, actually, I, I think the last that we talked about, it was sort of like everything was uncertain just because this was sort of hanging out there and you didn't really know who the creditor set was. Bill, I know this is obviously a name for you as well. Uh, you know, does it impact in terms of how you're thinking about recoveries or, or sort of where the money goes and who wins here? It, it was it was somewhat surprising. Um, you know, you, you read the decision and I, I guess one of the things that I remarked to Nagisa when we discussed it afterwards was, uh, you know, it turned on a word of like entitled, you know, that, that that's the fun thing with these things is like 
you know, were they really entitled to this payment because it was, you know, three years before it was actually due. Um, and so uh, it, it was just a fascinating case. And, you know, you're, you're, you're really just leaning on the courts. Um, so w what does it mean for Revlon? Um, yes, they have clarity that it looks more and more like the lenders who they thought they owed money to are the ones who they uh, owe money to still. But those same set of lenders were the most aggressive lenders when it came to how they were with Revlon. So to some extent, having Citibank, who did a lot of favors for Revlon in that actually got Citibank sued originally, um, you know, now all of a sudden those lenders, the most aggressive lenders you have back and you have two groups. You have the Quinn Emanuel group. The Quinn Emanuel group uh, represents the uh, discharge for value group. I think they need to come up with a new name now that they lost. Um, and then you have the returning lenders who, I guess you have the real returning lenders are going to be the Quinn Emanuel group and the Aiken group is the existing lenders. So you have, and clearly they're going to be trying to challenge the liens that were released by um, the 2016 term lenders. And that's, that, that's, that sounds like it's going to be an adversary fight, uh, you know, um, probably I presumably maybe a suit being filed. And I wouldn't be surprised if Citibank gets sued again. Um, but it's it's uh, it's going to be interesting. I mean, Revlon is set to deliver a business plan by the end of September. Um, you know, all these things, I, I presume at some point that they'll, they'll make their directions known. And, you know, they're, they're probably holding stuff over their head in negotiations uh, whenever they start or if they are ongoing. But so I guess maybe ever the, interesting. The summary, there, <laughs> the summary there is maybe if you've got uh, ideas for the new name for that particular uh, lender group, send them to Phil and uh, we'll see what we can do to maybe change it at the. Uh, the formerly discharge for value group lender group yeah yeah that's right uh whatever you think they should be doing. um all right so let's maybe change gear a little bit here and, and i know another name that's really uh, grabbed a lot of the last few weeks was 3m nagisa you know, big happening there maybe maybe walk our listeners through that situation sure so uh a big decision came out in 3m uh uh the company basically failed to secure a stay of personal personal injury suits relating to the earplug litigation through the Chapter 11 of its sub. Uh, it's been controversial, uh, the idea of seeking to resolve mass torts through bankruptcy. Uh, we, have, uh, we have seen it uh, attempted and most recently in J&J. Uh, there have been a number of cases in North Carolina bankruptcy courts as well. And as controversial as it's been, however, this is the first failure of a company uh, seeking to take advantage of the automatic stay with respect to the parent um, in, in all of these cases. So though it's a new, uh, it's, it's sort of a new strategy and, and we're still sort of figuring, we'll figure out where we go with this, uh, the, the fact that this is the first time that a company has failed to uh, apply the automatic state to a parent was sort of a surprise. Um, 
what happens from here in 3M is uh, sort of embark on this potentially very lengthy appeal process. There's a potential for expedited appeal to the Seventh Circuit that will likely be granted. That's what's been happening in J&J as well. Um, and then from then on, depending on how the Third Circuit will rule and uh, how the Seventh Circuit may rule, we may see this issue uh, in the Supreme Court. And again, this is probably going to be a lengthy path ahead. Um, this is what's happening with 3M. The lawsuits are continuing in the MDL court. Um, there's uh, potential for mediation, but uh, everything is very contentious. Even something as simple as to uh, who will be in charge of mediation, who, who, which courts sort of will have some uh, ability to oversee the mediation, even ish, small issues like, like that have been and will likely continue to be very contentious. Um, one thing surprising about, not surprising, but probably ironic and to point out about the ruling was that uh, the, it, it mainly stemmed from 3M's uh, offer of an uncapped commitment to fund all EOPLAC liabilities. The, at the core of it, the, core, the court looked at that and said, because 3M has taken it upon itself to fund all these liabilities, um, there is no harm to the sub who's in bankruptcy if losses continue uh, against 3M because 3M will reimburse the sub at the end of the day. Uh, so it's sort of this, this 3M being overly generous and seeking to, uh, having this unca uncapped fund uh, for, for many reasons among whom probably to establish the good faith nature of the bankruptcy and so forth. Sort of that became its downfall at the end of the day, uh, at least at the bankruptcy court level. Again, this, will, this is sort of a long path ahead for this case. All right, so I guess the theme song there is going to be a little Alanis Morissette, it sounds like. Maybe let's uh, pivot over to uh, another interesting one, uh, Celsius' continued evolution there. I would say things are heating up, but that seems uh, too trite. Uh, Eliza, what do we got? Uh, what's the latest? Let's bring you in here. Uh, what are we hearing on Celsius? One thing that was interesting this week that really stuck out to me, at least, was um, the company sort of doing a an about-face about their actual liquidation, uh, liquidity status right now. So they had to sheepishly admit to the judge that they had lost track or sort of forgot about a an asset worth $60 million that they are now you know, able to benefit from and it's, it's helping them, giving them a little more runway. So they've also said in calls to, they've said in court and elsewhere that they now have more runway. They had predicted they would run out of cash in October. Now they have more time. And we'll see what they do with these, these assets that are coming out of nowhere. Well, in all fairness, I forget about $60 million here. They're we all the do. Time. Uh, so it's, it's, it's got to be an honest mistake. But I it's know the there's work. a little bit more to this story. Uh, I think Nagisa, uh, you know, I want to say examiner something or other. Isn't there something else going on? Yeah, so there's actually a hearing tomorrow, the 4th, September 14th, 
on the appointment of an examiner, which basically is an investigator that comes out of the report uh, in Celsius. Uh, Celsius transparency has obviously been an issue from the beginning of the case. That's probably an understatement. So uh, there's a lot of parties, uh, including the Unsecured Creditors Committee, who's in the process, they say, of undertaking a uh, sort of a massive look into uh, the company uh, pre-bankruptcy, post-bankruptcy, um, and added to that, it was a request by the U.S. trustee to appoint an examiner, which will likely be granted tomorrow. Uh, so th there's clearly need for that. When you call for uh, for parties like an examiner to be appointed, there's also issues of, well, will there be an overlap with who's conducting these investigations? So the court is sort of wary of cost, so we'll see probably a more curtailed role. There's been calls out there for, for a trustee appointed as well, which is an extraordinary remedy in a bankruptcy case. It's probably not time for that yet here, but uh, sort of following what Eliza said, these issues uh, are there. Uh, the court is made aware and sort of see actions taking place to shed some light into all of this. Interesting. And maybe uh, one of the more recent, uh, I guess, uh, joiners of the, the bankruptcy club, you know, Cineworld, uh, you know, recently sort of uh, took a step there. And and so I know uh, we've got a little bit of from all of you on, on that name. Maybe, Nagisa, you can start us off in terms of what's the what's the earliest in terms of what we're looking for there. Sure. So Cineworld filed... Uh blaming almost exclusively the effects of the pandemic. Um, the main issue, and this is on the second day of filing, has been the dip. It was a $1.95 billion dip. Uh, and uh, on the first day, the court rewrote, I'd say, a fairly large portion of the dip. Uh, say rewrote, it's heavily recommended to get rewritten. Um, to allow unsecured creditors, uh, once they get organized, an opportunity to find replacement financing uh, and challenge certain uh, priming loans. Uh, so the company filed with the deal with a group of lenders that included uh, that include Blackstone, Eaton Bay, and Cyrus, uh, and had three main components to it. Uh, there were over six hundred million. Uh, to fund Chapter 11, and that was sort of the portion of the new money that was going in. And then there are two other interesting components of the DIP, one of which was a $271 million payment to certain loan facilities that they called rest of world loans for loans issued outside of the U.S., uh, U.K., and Ireland. And uh, the goal for that was to avoid bankruptcy proceeding abroad. This is a very large company, obviously, with operation across the globe. Um, there was immense fear that if uh, those uh, entities would, would file outside of the U.S., there would be massive value lost. And the court understood that, and that portion of the dip wasn't challenged. Uh, most of the concern revolved around the $1 billion repayment of the priming loans. Um, and court just was uncomfortable granting that on day two of the case, basically. Um, that led to a delay of that $1 billion financing until the end of October to give unsecured creditors 
an opportunity to find replacement financing or challenge these loans. Um, just a few weeks uh, to do that. Um, I think Phil has will sort of give more details to what it means because it was a costly move on the part of the court. Um, uh, generally speaking, I guess it, this seems to be have a very quick pace. Uh, there's uh, an exit plan at the latest by end of February. Uh, parties said even sooner. Uh, there's a Chapter 11 path, but then there's also a potential asset sale path that they've put in front of the court as far as milestones and dates moving forward. So, so maybe before we get to some of the details with Phil here, Eliza, maybe bring you in. It, you know, are you hearing anything, any thoughts or scuttlebutt around sort of either one of those courses or anything you're hearing around, Senator? I've certainly been interested in what interested bidders might ar arise from, you know, it's strategic or financial. So AMC is certainly a player in the market that has shown and demonstrated a lot of interest in acquisitions. And they've said they want to um, put some of their cash to use. Uh, you know, the CEO Adam Aaron has a lot of big goals. Um, so I wonder what they are looking at, if anything, in terms of either bidding for some assets or at the very least, um, looking to take over some of the leases that Cineworld might get rid of. Um, but I think there are other interested parties too there potentially. And uh, especially since the company didn't file with a really solid plan in place that leaves open a lot of optionality for third parties. Yeah, so that'll be interesting to watch. And, and certainly I, I think anything to sort of get the apes excited probably. You know, it's, it's on the table. But so, yeah. Phil, maybe dig in a little bit deeper here for us in terms of, you know, I know you've done some work here. What are you what are you thinking as sort of that first blush? Yeah, I'm going to dive deeper into what Nagisa described. I'm just going to segue off of her because Judge Marvin Isger's decision to, uh, you know, sort of force the hand of the company uh really is going to come with quite a price tag. Um, I estimate it could be about $25 million. And I'll tell you what he did is right now he, he set it up. Cineworld was dire for money. They had $4 million of, dollars of cash when they filed. Um, and there already were. Well, they should have talked to Celsius. I heard they just found 60. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, 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 you know, you even heard that uh, certain film producers were actually like, not getting paid. So it was absolutely critical that they got the money. Um, and so, but when you go into court and you ask for $1.785 billion on an interim basis, that's a big ask. Um, and especially when you say, oh yeah, and a billion of that is going to just go uh -huh. right out the door to pay pre-petition lenders. And the so- The judge didn't like that. No, the judge did not like that. And so what he, what, what, so to get the cash in the door, he said, okay, fine, we'll take the money, but you've got to wait before you're actually going to be able to pay down that pre-petition priming loan. So for the next 53 days through October 31st, the company is potentially paying interest out twice on a billion dollars when it only should be really paying interest on it once. Now, the folks who are not getting paid out on day one is the, the pre-petition. There, 
their blended interest rate, if I'm assuming 200 basis points of default interest, is about 17.25%. So that's not bad for 53 days on a billion dollars. That works out to be about $25 million. So they're being paid to wait. Um, the company got its money. This isn't necessarily a, a great solution from the CEO's perspective. And it, all, it also introduces some interesting questions because the Unsecured Creditors Committee actually does have the ability to say, hey, you know what, we don't need um, till October 31st, pay down this loan immediately. And maybe there's some money allocated to the unsecured creditors in order to do that. But you need the priming lenders to say, oh, we'll give that money up too. So it, it, it's just... Marvin Isger, like uh, Judge Marvin Isger, like he, he definitely, um, you know, he, he basically said to the company, that, you know, the bankruptcy code doesn't allow me to do this. You know, to, I understand providing dip financing, but not for just taking out pre-petition debt. Um, you know, and there's an automatic stay here that that's not necessary. And so um, but the existing lender said there's no new check without the our old loans getting taken. Now, also what's very interesting, and I thought it would be more widespread, but really there's uh, two members of the 24-member uh, legacy lenders group, Invesco and Diameter Capital. Those, those, between those two, they own 34% of, uh, of the uh, priming loan. So it's, it's really concentrated in just two of those 24 hands. The next largest lender is like Less, uh, less than four times smaller. So um, it's, uh, you know, everything comes with a cost. And, uh, you know, $25 million is a hell of a lot just for, um, you know, preserving a challenge period. Is there a sense in terms of what either, uh, you know, Nikisa or Liza sort of highlighted in terms of, is there uh, any, I mean, it's still early days, right? But, you know, I think Nikisa highlighted the fact that it looks like it's, it's, in line to be a, a relatively speedy start to finish type of thing. And, and, you know, on the flip side, you know, Eliza was sort of highlighting the fact that they, maybe there's going to be some interested parties that don't want to pick up some of the assets to the degree that they sort of come on the market. Uh, do you get any early sense of that? Or do you think there's any preferred course for creditors here? So, so my thoughts there are, you have, a very well organized group of legacy lenders here that you know that that's when i say the legacy lenders i mean the 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 folks who own the 3.94 billion and they're also going to be investing in the dip and they the company's most assuredly looking at them as their future equity shareholders um you also have management that has run this company for you know, since it's basically the beginning and, you know, they, they trace it back to the, like their, their family in the 1930s. And certainly for the last 25 years, they've been expanding it. So I think you have very reluctant management here to kind of letting it go. Now, can you come up with something maybe where they get acquired and they get to manage even a bigger, uh, you know, footprint? Possibly. But, um, you know, you'd have to knock, you'd have to knock some, you'd have to blow some people away with a bid if you were really going to come in here. And just like, let keep it in perspective. Um, the company in 2021 just made 
$54 million of EBITDA after lease payments. Uh, and they're basically break even through the first six months of the year. This is not a business that's even making money on a operating cash, never mind before interest. And, you know, debt capacity here, we're talking about a $2 billion dip. Debt capacity's, you know, probably not even going to be that $2 billion. So there's a, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of debt here, including the dip, that needs to, you know, we're going to have to see some equity raised. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think the company's, the, company's, the company's path is a great way to sort of show us what you got to the, to, to the marketplace. We'll sell the company if we can. Maybe we come out with a plan of reorganization. Uh, one of the other curveballs here that's I think particularly interesting is that uh, they had a failed acquisition um, the, in December 2019 they were set to acquire uh, a Canadian based uh, uh, movie theater chain uh, called Cineplex and Cineplex uh, they terminated that in June of 2020 and then Cineplex sued them and this company's uh, Cineworlds just had awful luck. They lost that case and they are on the hook for $1.2 billion. However, that $1.2 billion is at the very ultimate parent. So it's well, you know, they're probably looking at an extremely low recovery on that. But I only say that to sort of say there's a lot of issues here that need to get um, sort of worked out and, um, you know, and not to mention they need product. I mean, one of the big things that they highlighted <laughs> is they need well, I mean, good. We don't, we don't need to go into the movies. Good uh, quality films. Anyway. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, I think we could all use some of those, but um, maybe let's uh, change gear and sort of move into the end phase here. I know we got a couple of more names to tackle. Uh, and since it is the end phase, let's start with Endo. Uh, Nagisa, I know that's uh, a name we finally, uh, and Phil, right? I mean, gosh, we've been waiting for it and, and we finally got it. So what does it look like? Sure. So Endo filed in August with a solid proposal and restructuring frame, framework for moving forward, but with certain very interesting hiccups, I'd say, at the beginning of the case. Uh, there's a $550 million opioid trust established. And while it's not unanimous, uh, doesn't have didn't have unanimous support at the, at the time of filing, uh, it certainly didn't appear to be the key point of contention in the case. And uh, we think that even if it's sort of not the ultimate answer, if it changes depending what other proposals will be down the road, uh, we suspect that to be sort of the the framework for the opioid deal. Uh, putting that aside. The anticipated restructuring setup uh, is a deal that establishes a sale process with a $6 billion value floor that's supported by the first lien lender's credit bid. Uh, so the first hearing, I'd call it not a very contentious one, that is uh, until holders of unsecured debt uh, took their turn. Uh, it's uh, The pre-bankruptcy negotiations were primarily with a crossover ad hoc group of first lien, second lien, and unsecured debt holders. Um, and that those negotiations then were, that group was then replaced negotiations by the group of first lien holders uh, uh, that 
ultimately put in the credit bid for the for the for the, for the floor. Uh, we do expect that crossover group to submit uh, a bid in the ongoing sale negotiation, but there wasn't much opposition from them at the hearing. Um, the key objection. Uh, so we have this proposal that effectively provides no recovery for holders of second lien and unsecured debt. And the key objection came from a ad hoc group of unsecured note holders who asked the court to terminate uh, the company's exclusivity in order to be allowed to file their own Chapter 11 plan uh, alongside or so in parallel with the sale process. Uh, their plan, sort of the idea behind it is to reinstate first lien debt and convert unsecured debt to reorganize uh, equity. I'd say that's a pretty extraordinary move for uh, the first day of the case. Uh, termination of exclusivity is not a common remedy to begin with. It's almost unheard of at the beginning of the case, except in cases of fraud or something just truly obvious. So. Um, that's interesting about Endo. That was interesting uh, uh, from the first day. So we'll sort of see how that proceeds from there. Interesting. And Phil, anything to sort of uh, add on to that? No, I think I, 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 I thought it was interesting. White in case uh, uh, Tom Loria put forward, you know, the company's looking to sell the company on day one. Why not give us a chance to come up with a plan of reorganization? And that there's a certain, you know, Okay, that kind of makes sense, but um, as Nagisa points out, that's that's a that's that'd be quite an accomplishment if they actually pulled this off. All right, so let's maybe move. Uh, I guess saving the best for last, in a matter of speaking, Eliza, I want to bring you back in here, and so uh, maybe you have some stuff to add. And here's a name from sort of my deep past when I used to cover the space. Uh, Bed Bath and Beyond. It's kind of like uh, the modern day Sears. It seems like we've been talking mm -hmm. about them forever as sort of being on the cusp and maybe maybe edging a little bit closer, still deeply stressed, uh, kind of a mixed bag of news flow around them. So, you know, Eliza, what's what's sort of the latest from your side in terms of what you're seeing, what you're hearing on on uh, the towel maker? Yeah, it is a big question mark for a lot of people. There are is certainly a lot of entrenched strategic missteps. Um, as we've reported most recently, their liquidity problems have come to a head or did come to a head um, be, in, in the form of suppliers being unwilling to ship goods um, whatsoever in some cases or on reasonable terms in others. So if you have gone to a Bed Bath & Beyond lately, you will have noticed because it is a pretty drastic, you, you don't see, you see empty shelves. And that is, of course, one of the most important things for a retailer to not have. You do want to have product in the store. The recent loan from Sixth Street Partners just doesn't seem big enough to address everything that needs to be addressed. The... Uh, you know, catching up with vendors, uh, getting current with that will take up possibly a majority of it, a big bulk of it. And they've been, and the company's been burning cash like crazy. You you really wonder how far the approximately 500 million can go. We're going to the re, uh, holiday season, which 
should be good, but the this financing came in just a little too late to really comfortably allow the company to use it to get product in the stores in time for the full holiday season. Thanksgiving is important for the company because a lot of people come in and buy their cookware and all their home and kitchen stuff to host Thanksgiving or to cook. And we're going to be bumping up against when people do that. So it's really uh, a big question mark for a lot of people watching the company. What, what will be the experience for vendors in the next few months and whether the company will be able to claw its way back um, in a way that will also, you know, there's been so much corporate turnover, management turnover that, you also wonder how they can get on even footing in terms of strategy and how fast they can. Yeah, it's certainly tough when, you know, the the vendor insurance side and, and the vendors themselves, you start getting leakage there because nobody wants to be sort of the last uh, last person out of the proverbial theater fire. And, uh, you know, so I always makes, uh, <laughs> you know, retail bankruptcies sort of a, a quickly melting ice cube of sorts. Uh, you know, I know you've done some at least preliminary work on the name as well there, Phil. Uh, any initial thoughts in terms of what strikes you or is this kind of looking at more like a, a sort of a run of the mill, uh, you know, sort of retail situation? Yeah, when it comes to uh, old, old, you know, war dog retailers like this one, you, you really start asking, does it need to exist? Is, is it really necessary, you know, on the other side? And so, uh, you know, uh, I'll lean on a lot of Eliza's like uh, re recent work and, you know, the, some of the scuttlebutt going on right now, you know, that in the marketplace, because, you know, I'm, I was going through some of the public filings and this company was buying stock back last year, I believe. So it's, 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 yeah. it's pretty incredible <laughs> how, like for years and years, it's crazy. Even in the city, they were half a billion. They were buying back stock. Yeah, no, they've, they've been certainly very aggressive in terms of uh, the, the shareholder return. I mean, I, they, they haven't had growth for a few years and up until maybe the last two or three years, right? They were still generating okay cash flow. But, you know, when the pandemic hit, I mean, that valve shut off and it shut off quick. And I, mm -hmm. You know, they're in a sort of a situation where I think it's sort of hard to recover from. Uh, and to Phil's point, right, I mean, sort of these old big box retail, uh, you know, it's really, you don't really have uh, the tolerance to absorb too many punches uh, and rebound. And, and it's sort of been a sort of a one-way train for them. So that'll be certainly one to watch and sort of one on the docket. Maybe that $500 million is enough to at least... Uh, Keep them through the holidays, and then I guess we kind of put on the the clock in January and see where things go. But uh, with that, uh, you know, let us go ahead and wrap up uh, what has been a very uh, very interesting and informative September session here. Lots to talk about, uh, you know, kind of across the spectrum. So uh, let me thank uh, certainly uh, Eliza and Nagisa and Phil, as well as our special guest Trey Parker. And with that, uh, we look forward to having you all back again next month. That would be October, just in time for Halloween, and uh, we'll we'll have you all then. Cheers. <laughs>